Eight. An eight. Chris, the topic we will be discussing today is how do you incorporate the families and loved ones of PCs into your role-playing games? Hello and welcome to Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about topics related to running role-playing games. I'm Chris Salzman. And I'm Andy Rao. Well, Andy, so I had something special for you that I decided to save until we were on air. So this morning, uh, my car got broken into. Oh, okay. Yeah. um, So (laughs) this is a nice, nice light intro. You sound very cheery, but carry on. Yeah, well, I'm cheery because it's a podcast, right? So, you know, we're putting on airs. But also, like, you know, nothing was really taken. Right? I think they got they got some change. Um, it sounds like they actually hit a couple cars on the street. Okay. And I'm, I'm told that this is common, right? Like, every once in a while, someone will go around and just try all the doors. Doors on the street. Did they, like, open the door or did they break a window? Oh, no, they opened the door because... Of course, I didn't lock the door, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's one of those those things. Like, you know, we live on a safe street. Why would you lock the door? Although, if you're the police, I, yeah, they, you know, I totally had it locked, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so they didn't, I mean, I think they, they rifled through. Um, I'm, I'm really mad they didn't take any of our CDs. They just decided that we don't have good enough taste, I guess, yeah. to take the CDs, anything like that. Um, yeah, so like some, some change and stuff. But, like the reason I bring it up on this this top this podcast about you know tabletop games is I think like stealing stuff is a hallmark of the of the game like you know like you you're always like you know you have a rogue on your party just sort of a standard thing that's the person who steals steals stuff for you it's very interesting having that happen to you in real life because like my first inclination was not like oh they got away with it it was like how dare they? Right? <laughs> yes. Like, yes. Yeah. And if they had actually taken something of, of like real value, the I would get the street together. We'd go, you know, like marching down with pitchforks and torches, and, you know, try to find <laughs> find the person who did it. <laughs> right. Um, so on one hand, I think I like I kind of understand dragons now. Right. Because like, you know, these people come in and they steal all your stuff and try to <laughs> try to leave. You know, so of course you're gonna be mad about it. But yeah, like, but also just like thinking about the the ramifications of if you had this like known adventuring party in your town where you knew that they were stealing stuff going around, you, it would like, you wouldn't let those people hang out, right? Like there would be, you know, like the whole police force would of, of the town would be, you know, getting together to, uh, you know, take down these criminals, you know, this criminal element. But, you know, oftentimes in our games, I think we laud, laud these people as heroes, but really they're, they're the lowest scum of the earth. Yeah. You know, we've touched on this a little bit in the past, the, Default D&D experience does kind of cast your adventures as sort of occupying like a somewhat respected role in society of like, you know, mm-hmm. professional hero, or professional problem solver. In reality, I mean, there's not a lot to distinguish you from this, like a band of, of like ne'er-do-wells and ruffians rolling into town, <laughs> right? Yes. Getting drunk and getting into a fight in the tavern and then mm-hmm. breaking into somebody's room in the tavern to steal their gold. You know, like everyone would know that while you were in town, it, trouble was just going to follow this group around. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you're right. The city watch would be like keeping an eye on them and... um yeah, I mean, it almost makes me you know, wonder if you if you leaned into that in your campaign a bit more. Like, yeah, anytime an adventuring party showed up in town, it's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we, we had some of you here before, like, just, just last month. Absolutely not. Like, you just keep on keep on going, you know, or you can, you know, hang out outside of town. Like, if you have your business, just get it taken care of and get out of here. Whenever I have a situation in life, I think is a very gameable moment. But it's it's on like the the opposite end of the fun part of the gaming moment. It's just it's very 
yeah, it's fun to sit there and kind of reflect. Like, I mean, I think like we months and months ago, maybe even years ago at this point, like I had cut myself and we, we talked about that a little bit on there. It's like, and like, it just like, it hurts, right? Like, I don't want that to happen again. And to think about like someone slashing you with a sword and then your very next turn, not like using that to run away and cry (laughs) somewhere is is very, it's like not true to life. Yeah. Getting robbed is, it's a very upsetting experience, you know, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like anything of huge value is taken from you, but you know, it probably would be interesting if the next time the PCs just kind of on a whim steal some junk from somebody in town what if that person is filled with rage and a desire for justice as a result of yes. that violation you yeah know? Uh, yeah or like a robbing i don't know i feel like this is a trope in dnd like you go into a somewhat sacred place and like you you rifle through their altar and take, yeah. you know, <laughs> yes. take whatever holy symbol you can find like holy yes. relic you can find i mean if if you did that there's a very good chance that every acolyte of that that in-game religion would be talking to each other and being like, yeah, they came and they took the thing. You know, it's like, you know, watch out for them. Like you're going to get, there's going to be a, a drawing of you passed around at every <laughs> every church. An in, adventuring in, in party would be hired to track you down and get the stuff back. Of course, yeah. Yeah, in fact, yeah, like maybe they'd send, send yeah, they're, they're like high priests or whatever <laughs> along yeah. with that adventuring party. So you've got a level 10 cleric who's very mad at you. <laughs> trying to find you so i have a quick theft anecdote as well by the way many years ago i was traveling cross-country with some friends and while we were staying overnight the car that had like most of my worldly possessions it was this was in college uh was stolen with all of my stuff so like my clothes all my stuff and my uh my entire cd collection at the time of which i was very proud and months later the car was recovered and everything uh-huh. was gone, but my CDs were still there. <laughs> and I can't tell you, a couple of two-bit criminals like judged my collection of like <laughs> Queensryche and Bon Jovi CDs and were like, "This is garbage. This is not even worth keeping." <laughs> so, oh, that's harsh. W- were there was there any band where they were taken? Or it really just I was don't... like they flipped through it. And like, nope. Like, I don't want any of this Megadeth. Just remembering my musical taste in college, I don't think there were too many keepers in that uh, in that collection. In <laughs> fact, yeah. So hey, um, I wanted to talk for a few minutes before we dive into our official topic i wanted to Mm -hmm. kind of react a little bit to our last episode oh yeah because i took some ideas from our discussion in the last episode and i applied them to the one shot i ran and i want to just briefly kind of describe what happened so if you recall in our last episode both chris and i talked a bit about the games we were kind of planning to run around halloween and i don't know if you're if your game is done but i ran just a one shot it was a spooky wild west one shot Mm-hmm. for a group of high schoolers i had a couple quick things just i wanted to share one is um mm-hmm. if you recall like i spent a good amount of time in that discussion kind of well i was angsting at the time about like how i wanted to let them experience the spread of situations that the savage world's rules could cover so i wanted some combat in there i wanted some social stuff and wanted some some skill-based challenges and I was struggling with how am I going to move players through the plot in like a limited amount of time and make sure. And after our discussion, you said something about when you ran one shots, you typically ran them as like location based. Mm-hmm. And after the discussion, I realized like I 
I really was going about this the wrong way. And I was trying too hard to create a situation that probably would happen by itself if I just um, eased off a little bit. So instead oh, of like, okay. so instead of map having the, instead of designing the adventure to be kind of a sequence of encounters that they would move through, I was like, now scrap this. They're going to be in like a haunted ghost town. So I just had basically each building in the ghost town have a different kind of, you know, something interesting in each building. So kind of encounter. Mm -hmm. And I, I just randomly determined the location of the buildings at the beginning of the adventure. And I just let them pick where they wanted to explore. And it worked oh, out cool. really well. So, um, yeah. And there was like, there was a story behind what was going on. Like there was a, a backstory you could figure out and you could even solve it. Mm -hmm. But I realized in a short one shot that probably wasn't going to happen unless I forced it and forcing it wasn't feeling right. So they picked up pieces of the backstory. They didn't put it all together and it that was fine. Were, were they trying to figure out the backstory? They were. So each kind of encounter had sort of a, a clue or a piece of what was really going on. But figuring out what was going on was not the main objective. The main objective was to rescue a kidnapped victim and to recover some stolen gold. So to the extent they figured out some of the town backstory, cool. But I decided not to try and make that the main focus. And that it worked well. So in our game, they got they explored about half of the locations. One of the things I like, and I, did, I remember doing this for a Numenera one shot um, a couple of years ago, is when you have... An adventure where like they have to find a missing object or they have to confront a specific person you know if it's location based you can quietly as a gm just see where they go and put the object in their path you know <laughs> yes, um yeah yeah rather than just hope that they pick the one one building out of the 10 in the town that has the gold yeah. in it i could just see what they were interested in exploring and make sure that the gold was somewhere where they might be able to find it so that worked out pretty well anyway sorry i've been rambling on for a while but um, any thoughts on that yeah i do i have a couple so the so it sounds like you did did you drop them like in into the ghosts of, into the town and just describe different doors and let them go go in or did you drop them inside of one of your locations and then then they got to choose from there in my original plan, they were going to have sort of like a prelude part where they would run into the bad guys and pursue them to the ghost town. But I decided to drop that. And I just said, mm -hmm. you've been chasing these bad guys. And here you are. And I started them at the entrance of town. And it was a small town. So there's just like one main street. And on each side of the street, there's like five buildings. So I gave yeah. a cursory description of each building. They were drawn to some of them and others didn't seem to interest them. Yeah, there was like the the fireworks factory and the, <laughs> like the library. <laughs> um, that's super cool. If mm -hmm. this were a campaign, I wouldn't cheese it quite like this, but it's a one shot and I don't want the one shot to end in total failure. So I just made sure that the key stuff was in the buildings that they, that they chose, you know. Oh, that sounds super cool. All right, so then I have to ask, right? So you ran it for a bunch of high schoolers. Yeah. How, what was that experience like running? I, I would so I imagine right. This is like a D and D club or like a role playing game club. Yep, yep. So that they know how to play games somewhat, but it's still you know handful of high schoolers. Like was that scary? Was that did they just make fun of you the whole time? I don't know. Yeah, what, what do high schoolers do? I've run a lot of games for younger kids, but with high schoolers, honestly, was a, it was more challenging than I thought it might be. So there were seven or eight kids, which is quite a few. And my main takeaway is like in a lot of role playing books, there's a section about like oh, how to deal with like how to recognize and deal with different types of players. So there's like the mm -hmm. the different personalities of player at the table. And 
Playing with adults, I haven't really found that to be terribly useful advice because most adults, I mean, not to not to really be little high schoolers, but most adults are kind of reasonable and they have like reasonable and very similar expectations about the game you're all sitting down to play, right? Because you're all friends, you're all mm-hmm. adults. But with high schoolers, I found that at the table, there really were a lot of very clearly different attitudes about what they wanted out of the game at the table. Yeah. There were some players that were kind of disruptive and clearly wanted something from the game that was different than the rest of the players. And there are players that were very quiet and obviously had something to contribute, but needed to have the attention turned deliberately on them to feel comfortable Mm -hmm. to participate. So being teenagers, you know, they are these personalities to the extreme, right? Like it's, yes, um, yeah. that was the most challenging element was just juggling a lot of excited teenage personalities at the table. And yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking about what I would have been like during that game as a, as a teenager. And I think, I mean, it's cringy, right? Like everybody thinks about like what they were like as a teenager and just wants to curl up into a ball and never think about that again. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it just would have been like this, this mix of like excitement and also trying to impress everybody at the table. And like, you know, like you just, yep, you have absolutely. all these thoughts kind of swirling around, you know, like you as like an adjusted adult, you know, like this is not that important, right? Like, <laughs> like you're playing a game you have other stuff going on in your day and stuff, but like for, I mean, like a teenager, like that could be like the highlight of the week or the month, you know, so that it has to go perfectly. Yeah. That's something that sank in partway through the game is a couple of kids in particular, like, wow, they are really taking this seriously. Like this is really important yeah. to them. And like mm-hmm. whether their character succeeds or fails is like a big deal to them. Um, whereas an adult just has less dramatic investment in what's happening. They have a little bit more ability to distance themselves. Like, Oh, I fumbled. That's mm-hmm. funny. Ha ha. But like, yeah, you know, your teenager rolls and they roll a fumble and they really screw up and something bad happens. Like that's kind of upsetting. And you can yeah. see that they're you can see that they're frustrated and upset. And it was a it was a really good bunch of kids and and I don't mean to disparage any of those personality types, you know. But it was interesting having such a wide spread of personalities at the table. If it were an ongoing campaign, it would inevitably lead to like some kind of taking a couple of people aside and kind of just establishing <laughs> you know what do you want out of this and is this is the way you're playing the best way to for all of us to have fun you know but it was a one shot so we didn't have to get into that yeah so the so i i am running i'm not done with it yet so i'm, I'm this one shot that i'm doing is based in the um curse of strahd yeah they're in inside castle ravenloft so it's a, a one shot titled um strahd must die tonight and the whole concept behind it right is that you you play for like four actual hours real world hours in the game and at the end of every hour, Strahd shows up to kind of toy with you a little bit and then disappears. And then after four hours, he's going to fight you no matter what. Right. So they, they're going into Castle Ravenloft and they have four hours to explore to try to to find there's an NPC that's in there um, that they're trying to find. And then a couple of like artifacts that they know about that they can they can use to to help their fight against Strahd. Like there's some stuff set up there if they just sit around and sort of like wait those four hours, it's not going to go well for them. Yeah. Right. So like there's, there's incentive for them to actually push through. And the first session went really well. And it was the first time I'd run D and D in, in person in two years, I think. Wow. That's fantastic. Uh, but it was, it was really good. Like I was super nervous because uh, Castle Ravenloft, uh, it's just a gigantic place, right? There, there are too many rooms for you to appropriately prep. Like there's too much going on inside that castle for you to really get your mind around for something like a one shot. 
Um, if I was running a long campaign, like, yeah, I would take, take probably a month to prep it. Right. And like uh-huh. really get, get it down and really figure out like how I'm going to do it and stuff. But so instead I had what, like a week, week or two, um, because I'm a pra- procrastinator, but, the, yeah. uh, yeah. So I, I like got like a rough idea of what I wanted to do. And the two things I was most nervous about were, um, nailing my Strahd accent. Um, that one yeah. kept me up at night and, then and getting... can, can we get, a, can we get a line in Strahd's voice? <laughs> And, I mean, I got to like, I spent like a half an hour before the game, like trying to, <laughs> trying to talk. So let me, let me see if I can do it. Like, uh, Andy, welcome to the castle. Okay. That's perfect. Yeah. This is very subtle because you don't want to go too much. Cause then you end up, like I mentioned, you, you end up either like Nandor from what we do in the shadows or you end up like Dracula. <laughs> so it's, yes. I was really, I was worried about that and that went fine. That was good. And then the other thing I was worried about was the actual mapping of the castle because, uh, like unlike say a pretty flat two-dimensional dungeon this is like a 50 room dungeon that spans seven or eight floors yeah and so i was like how am i going to map this if they decide to just speed run through some of these rooms you know like they're just going to run up the tower and go down to the basement and like you know do all this stuff but it ended up not really mattering because like as soon as they stepped inside the dungeon like all my notes went out the window because it was just like we started drawing on the paper, like drawing the map of the the castle and stuff. And it was like, okay, well this no longer looks like the map that I'm looking at in the book. So let's just put that aside and we'll, we'll just play yeah. this plays how we're going to play it. Um, yeah. And that ended up being a, a pretty good tactic. So like I, I was roughly following how they were going through the castle, if that makes sense and not worrying so much about getting all the turns correct yeah. and stuff, but they, um, you know, they've had a lot of neat stuff in it. There's been some really fun moments. Um, I'll describe one in just a little bit, but then, uh, yeah, they've, they've been having a lot of fun with it. We ended on a big kind of climactic battle, found one of the artifacts. And then the next time that we meet probably in a week or two, um, we'll, we'll pick up from there and hopefully they'll be able to kill Strahd that night. Playing it as a one shot is kind of nice because they're not going to revisit this location if they're not really going to be doing a lot of fact tracking and stuff like that, you don't really have to care too much about keeping the map straight, right? Like, yeah. if you were doing this a multi-month campaign and they were making repeated expeditions into the castle and you would have to really solidify the architecture be- from session <laughs> yes. to session, that might be a problem. But like for a one-shot, yeah. it doesn't really matter. Yeah, if you're if you're never going to play Curse of Strahd or you've played it, um before and you want to want to look it up there's a ton of really cool projects that people have done to make three-dimensional versions of the castle i mean it's just like people have done these models where you just like lay each floor on top of each other so you have this huge stack stack of stuff and then everything is modeled inside too with you know all the all the different chairs and chairs and tables and stuff um and that's really cool and that is not my style of running a game (laughs) at all (laughs) you know so it's like i I can appreciate that but then i also appreciate that they just see like you know we'll just sort of draw it out as we're going and uh hopefully it makes sense if you need to (laughs) ever think about it again so my favorite moment from it there is a room inside i don't think this is a spoiler but if you're like really nervous about that skip ahead a couple of minutes but there's a room that has a bunch of mirrors inside of the castle and it's sort of like it's somewhat of a secret room they found the opening into this room you know so it's a dark room that's full of mirrors one of the players decided to cast light on a coin and flip the coin into the into the room just like around the corner because they didn't want to you know go in there and you know face face some surprise monster or something like that you know so they flip a coin inside this room with a bunch of mirrors so i just described it as this light bouncing everywhere right like it's just it's bouncing off all the mirrors and stuff like well that's weird and then they sent a familiar in 
the familiar went in there. It's a, a bat familiar. And then it saw a bunch of bats everywhere. Right. <laughs> it's huh. like, no. So they're trying to figure out like, you know, what is going on with this room? And it was just one of those moments at the table where you're like, this is so fun. I know what that room is and I'm describing it straight to them and they keep on trying stuff. And it's like, none of this makes sense until you step inside the room. Ah, uh, yeah. Right. And it's just like one of those like magical moments, I think of like, yeah, gameplay and story and stuff all coming together yeah. um, that I just like love this hobby for. Yeah. Right. Like you just, you just, you just say these ridiculous things and it's like, but I'm like, I'm being honest to what would happen yeah. if you, <laughs> if you did this, you know, I'm not trying to, to pull a fast one on you or anything. You know, a couple episodes ago, both of us were a little bit in the doldrums where you're talking about like imposter mm-hmm. syndrome and both feeling a little blah, blah. And I think both of us had the experience and I just heard you describe it of at the table, just being reminded how fun this hobby is and how fun it can just be to, to run or to play a game, you know, when it's going right. Um, and oh, I, yeah. I definitely had that experience with the one shot. And it sounds like sounds like Strahd had some really just genuinely enjoyable moments for you. Yeah, it is. It is fun. It's like, you know, once I got past the nerves and all, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm like playing a game, game with friends. This is, you know, really amazing to get to do this. For me, it's been hard, hard to not run games in person. Like I've I've gotten to play some games in person and that's been really good. Like running something, you know, going through the prep and like getting it all ready, you know, scheduling, get everybody at the table and like, you know, and then you have that moment where you switch from chit chat to like now we're running the game. It's such a unique experience to get to do stuff like that. Yeah. You know, and then like the first time that you have to, you know, actually say your silly Dracula line out loud <laughs> to your yes. friends. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to try it. <laughs> let's let's see how it goes. So, hey, let's dive into our topic, shall we? Yeah. The topic we rolled is an interesting one. I think it's been on the table for quite a while. How do you incorporate families and loved ones of feces into your games? And let me start this mm-hmm. one out. Um, as I often do by thinking back to the days of old when I was younger. And I want to explain <laughs> my main experience with um, incorporating families and loved ones into a game. The first time that I even gave any thought to the PCs having loved ones or a family was when I and my high school friends were playing the top secret SI role-playing game. And like a lot of role-playing games, when you create your character, you buy advantages for them and you can get points to buy advantages by taking some disadvantages. And as Mm. you'll find in a lot of role-playing games, uh, one commonly taken disadvantage is to have a dependent or a basically (laughs) a loved one. And by buying that disadvantage, you are signaling to the GM from a gameplay perspective, this is a point of vulnerability for my character that can be used against me. It's going to disadvantage my character that I have a wife or a kid or an elderly grandma I have to take care of. There's countless RPGs in which you'll find that basic setup. If you are going to involve family or friends, it's it's as a lot explicitly a liability for your character. It evokes to me a lot of like the way that loved ones are used in like superhero comics, you know, like Aunt May is there mostly <laughs> yes, so yeah. that Green Goblin can like periodically threaten to, you know, <laughs> kidnap her yeah. or something of like that, right? That has been for me the main way that families and stuff like that have been incorporated into the game as something, you know, I'm not I'm not like ruthless or stupid about it, but as a GM, when someone says, I have a grandma that I have to take care of. You know, my GM Mm -hmm. mind is like, ah, how can that get the player into trouble? These days, I would say, how can that create some like drama and tension and stakes? 
you didn't play role-playing games back in the days of yore when that was the standard way that dependents and loved ones are presented. How does that strike you? Yeah, it strikes me as very much like a in-genre sort of thing back in the 80s and 90s because that was that like that like sort of like self-made white man like mentality of like yeah like i'm i'm at my best when i am fully divorced from Mm. from this world and Mm -hmm. and all the trappings of it right like that's that that was sort of the power fantasy back then and like now i mean that's just like so destructive right it's like so so awful to me to think about it but um, I immediately started thinking about, have you seen, um, there's two movies that I've watched recently, um, Onward, that Pixar movie okay. from I have not like a seen couple it. years ago. I mean, you should, right? Like, if you like Pixar movies at all, like it's, a, it's like their D&D movie, right? Like, it's, it's all about, like, these kids going on an adventure and stuff. There's a mom character in that who ends up being very crucial throughout as part of, like, the actual adventure in it. So she's sort of chasing her kids as they're going on this adventure, and she has her own little quests and stuff that she's doing. And then, you know, like she's part of the, the epic final battle and stuff. And like, to me, like that's a really powerful example of like how those connections can be in, inside of a game, inside of a story. You know, she's not a passive individual where it's like, you know, the story is immediately putting her in prison or something. And the, the boys have to go save her mm-hmm. or you know, something like that. She's an active participant, right? Like, so that's, that's the switch to it is like, okay, like, so, Hey, you have a grandma there who has all sorts of connections right like she's because she's old so maybe she knows a bunch of people that the players could communicate with um you know maybe she has like funds that she could give the players you know like there's there's all these like positive things (laughs) to that too Uh i think that like but if you always like yeah but casting it is just like you have this dependent often a in a home somewhere that you have to make sure that you're taking care of Right, it's like two sides of the same coin, right? Like you could you could approach it in in both ways. I think and like have it be be somewhat true, but like again, people are complex, right? So like maybe it is there. There's a dependent, but then you also have the like the resources part of it too. Yeah. Going back to your your gaming days of yore, did you ever treat treat like the that family member as a potential resource or positive thing, or was it always just like leaning on the the extra danger i'm always leaning on the extra danger i think you know because yeah i mean in my youth i mean that was the way it was presented in the rules like this is yeah. a weakness this isn't something that should wind up being an advantage for your player because they took this weakness they are a ambidextrous ninja with you know <laughs> they because they took this weakness yeah. they now have a plus 25 sniping skill so you know yeah. you can't <laughs> one thing that comics do that better comics do is they married uh, is it mary who's spider-man's like girlfriend You'd mary, mary jane, jane you're right. just like <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm sure some people are just screaming at their podcast player now that <laughs> so it's boring when dr octopus kidnaps mary jane and spider-man has to go rescue mary jane i mean that's that's lazy mm-hmm. and boring right it's interesting mm-hmm. when spider-man's you know life of crime fighting creates conflict or drama with mary jane um mm-hmm. Or yeah. Like, or she finds out who he is, or she comes to an incorrect conclusion about him because of the demands of his superhero life, right? And I wonder mm-hmm. if I were to play a game where you know a dependent or family was involved, I think I would look for more ways to have that person react and become entangled with the player's life in ways that create drama, rather than just oh. use them as a cheesy kidnap plot. Yeah, there's there's a ton you can do. And I mean, I like what you said there about like the mistaken identity, like, you know, like 
yeah, or uncovering, <laughs> you know, uncovering who, you know, Peter Parker actually is like, I mean, it's a hallmark of comics. I don't know exactly how you do that in a game, but I like the thought of, Hey, this person has a secret about you and you know, like you can't stop them from telling, <laughs> you know, telling that. And like, again, if they have motivations of their own, maybe they have a reason to yeah. share. The other movie that I was thinking about Mitchell's versus the machines. It's a really good family movie like you know especially if you're i think especially if like you're a dad like it's it's a good good family movie to watch like you know really good animation and stuff the adventuring party in that is like a family unit right so it's like a nuclear family there's a mom a dad and daughter and a a son and it's like watching that movie is really fun because you get to see like their relationship dynamic and you have all this like built up drama and tension and stories and stuff in between them but then they're also like all good at their own thing too. And they have to like work together and use those skills. Part of me wonders like how fun it would be to run a game where you're playing a family hmm. <laughs> like together. Yeah. Like you are playing all like your, your loved ones. That could be really neat. There's another way I've seen family used in role-playing games. I haven't really done this as much. Certain games like Call of Cthulhu. If you have a game where there's a possibility the PC will die or be taken out in some way and you don't want to have the whole campaign just come crashing to a halt, like if you've invested a year Mm -hmm. into a Call of Cthulhu campaign and you don't want it to just peter out because somebody got killed by a cultist, right? So there's the suggestion you'll see. I've seen that families and friends are obvious like replacements for PCs to step Mm -hmm. into if your PC dies or is taken out, the family or friend follows and picks up the trail where you left off, I guess. There's a, definitely a kind of certain artificiality about that. I mean, it's a it's a game mechanic for just having a replacement PC that makes a little bit of sense <laughs> yeah. to step in, right? But I've always yeah. liked the idea, and I wish I could remember what game this was, but uh, that in order for that to happen, you had to have been reporting to that character what's been going on oh like so keeping them appraised i really like the idea of having a player describe how they what their friends and family know about what they do and how the player like talks to them about what they're doing you know does Mm -hmm. uh, do you write you have a weekly letter where you just diary style write out what you've been up to you know um do you (laughs) yeah how would you need to involve your friend or family member in order for them to be able to step up and take your place if you get knocked out? Yeah. To me, that's a neat idea. I've even I I forget what game system it is. I think it might be something weird like Hackmaster or something like something you wouldn't think, mm-hmm. where the experience level that PC has when they step into the game depends on how good a job you've been doing reporting what you've been doing. That's fascinating. So the Eternal Lies game that I played in that finished up. So we also played Trail of um, Narlathotep <laughs> uh, as well. So the, the characters from that Trail game ended up showing up in Eternal Lies. And in, in fact, I think just one of the players actually played the nephew of his character from oh. <laughs> from the, the previous game too right so like it was it was fun for like us like this is gonna sound a little hokey but like like we had loved ones from that other game because like there were these characters that we loved as, as yeah as um like as like you know people who played played with these characters a bunch and then in the eternal lies game like they would show up every once in a while and like especially since you know they were related and like we we sort of like some of our characters knew those characters too it added this extra layer i think to that 
where it was like, oh my goodness, like they're here, like that that sort of thing, like that like yeah. cheers effect almost of like yeah, norm, you know. They kind of create this continuity to the setting. Mm-hmm. They break in a good way the illusion that the whole world ends outside your PC's line of sight. Yeah, I think so. Like something you just said there, I think is super important. I mean, having loved ones for the PCs, I think grounds what they're doing quite a bit um, for them. So, like the the one strong example I have of this was, uh, you know, one of a rogue in a D anD D campaign that I ran had a nephew character that popped up every once in a while, and like who like adored her and like wanted to know everything about like what was going on. You know, like this was like someone to protect and stuff. Like having those moments, a little tough to to role play that, you know, a bit. But it was also like it was really fun having that that touch point of like, you know, this is like you're going off and doing these adventures, but then you're sending money back to this like uh-huh. this person. You can go talk to them too, right? Like and update them on what's going on, and they they care about you and want to know. And like they're not going to be able to step into your shoes. They might want to, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, having that. Um, yeah, I think is a good grounding effect because otherwise then it, it can turn a little bit into uh, like, well, we're heroes, we're untouchable, we roll through, we just, you know, do what we're going to do, kill some dragons and stuff. But like having a reason why yeah, is, is helpful. It feels very natural to have like loved ones and families in like more modern genre games like Call mm-hmm. of Cthulhu, Trail of Cthulhu, and also like superhero type things where loved ones as you know, vulnerabilities are really common, but I'm curious, you know, do you see people creating for themselves families and loved ones in like D and D fantasy? Is that something that's Mm -hmm. common at your table? You just mentioned that it has happened at least with one of your characters. Is that a thing people think about? I think so. It might be a function of how, of how like D and D modules are written now that like, that's, there's a lot of that sort of built in. I think like there's, suggestions about having having family members i mean like to me it's just sort of like that's part of reality in the real world so of course it should show up in games too yeah Um, i think for me it would change things if it was explicitly sort of like not encouraged then to me that that signals like okay this is going to be a really crunchy game with a lot of combat (laughs) and like not a lot of role playing if we're kind of explicitly not told to yeah to have these have these bonds have these people you know people special people in our lives and stuff yeah and like, especially if i was playing a game nowadays and they're like okay you can take this disadvantage of having a kid at home i'd be like what wait wait no i have I have kids at home like you know yeah. that's not a disadvantage is it <laughs> you know there'd be uh some amount of like of how galling that you would do that <laughs> i mean the literary genres that feed D tend to give us characters and heroes that are disconnected from their families and societies mm-hmm. right and yeah. i mean there's some obvious ones like the elrics who are just total loners with no you know connections or the conans but you know yeah. even <laughs> even people that aren't quite that extreme you know if they're out adventuring across middle earth they are weird they've like stepped outside their communities Mm -hmm. you know they've left their families behind in some way shape or form or maybe they've been cast out or they can't go back home or they're they've lost their family you know because that creates such easy you know character drama and tension to have them be outcasts or to have suffered you know the loss of um, family and stuff like that that's such a common thing in fantasy in general 
I do think it is kind of neat to hear about players in D&D today going, hey, it really wouldn't make sense for my character not to have a mom and dad and maybe a brother who lives in this town over here. And that's really exciting. I think it, it makes total sense. But I do think it is pushing back a little bit against like some very long-standing genre tendencies. Yeah, it's as you're saying that I'm thinking about Lord of the Rings because I'm always thinking about Lord of the Rings. But like, yeah, like, like <laughs> yeah, um, as you Frodo, know. Frodo doesn't, Frodo doesn't get to like ever come back, right? Like he leaves, he never gets to come back, but he gets to visit Bilbo on the way, right? Yep. Like he gets to see Bilbo that one last time, and that's sort of like the first, the first milestone for him is like getting, you know, like getting to there, right? Like getting to see see Bilbo, you know, that one last time. Whereas, like, Sam does get to go back to the Shire. And, like, he is, I'm going to say, like, he's sort of, like, largely unchanged other than, like, his his memories and stuff. From that, like, unlike Merry and Pippin, like, right, he didn't he didn't grow taller and stuff. Like, yeah. Right, right. Like, Sam went, he did this whole thing. He never wanted to do any part of it. He just wanted to get back and marry Rosie and, like, live live a nice, quiet life. Right? And, like, I think, like, a modern a modern gamer would probably look at like at Sam and be like, that's, that's who I want to be. And I think maybe like an, an older school gamer might look at like Frodo and be like, that's who I want to be. And then I'm not sure who looks at Aragorn and says, I want to be that, but like, you know, there's, you know, there's someone, some personality type that, that wants that too, that, that like loner who ends up being the King. Right. Like, so it's, yeah. But I think like that, that Sam character to me is like the archetype of, I think what a lot of people are looking for in their D and D game is like this big adventure, but then coming back home. Well, awesome. Well, I think that we should wrap it up there. Uh, unless you had any closing comments that we haven't already touched on? No, I think that's pretty good. I feel like I made a, a good point about Lord of the Rings, and that always makes me happy. So, <laughs> It's always good yeah. when we can bring up Lord of the Rings, which, as you say, you know, I do think about pretty much all the time. Like, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Dune, Dune temporarily replaced it for, like, a week uh this yeah. this fall but that was about it but then it was back to just thinking about lord of the rings all the time so <laughs> yes fair yes. enough okay well uh yeah. all right chris any closing uh items we need to cover here yeah i think i want to allude to something although we don't have any strong plans yet we're, we're gonna do something special for the holidays again we're, we're not 100 percent sure what that is if you have ideas on what you want that to be i guess let me know uh but i've got a big list of stuff um and i think we'll we'll pull some of our our friends and uh, former guests and stuff and see what they're excited about. But, but I, I'm looking forward to it. We, we tend to do something special every holiday season and I, I don't think this one will disappoint. So get hyped, I guess is my, <laughs> my parting thought there. Oh, well, I have, that's uh that's good. I'm excited yeah. to talk with you and with some of our former guests and stuff more about what that will be. Cause it is, it is always a fun time, yeah. whatever we do. I wanted yeah. to say yeah. one real quick thing. You and I, don't publish or write you know games uh, in the gaming industry or whatever but we have a couple of former guests that are definitely involved and Mm -hmm. i just wanted to do a shout out because um kyle latino you know a a frequent guest and friend of the show he has done a number of projects for prominent games recently and like one of them i just Mm -hmm. saw in the bookstore uh flames of freedom has some of kyle's uh, map amazing maps in it um so i just wanted to just do a quick shout out like if you're looking for some cool maps uh, go check out flames of freedom yeah. and yeah i think he has yeah and i i'm not sure like what is publicly announced and stuff but yeah he he has a lot of cool work upcoming that i'm i'm super excited about in like systems i wouldn't normally look at too so i feel like this is this is a hallmark of like a good artist is like you 
you see their art and you're like, oh, maybe I do want to pick up that book and, you know, yeah, like that. So yeah, we obviously love Kyle. Oh, and then uh, the other thing, actually, another like uh, tangentially related to Roll for Topic stuff. Um, uh, there's a Mothership Kickstarter oh, going yeah. on right now that I've been trying to resist, but I don't know how much longer I'm able to resist it. It's They're doing a cool box set. Yeah, well. it looks fantastic. Yeah, this has been your go buy stuff corner, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, uh, let's wrap it up here, Chris. You want to uh, close us out here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been Chris Halsman. I've been Andy Rao. And remember, if your players are having fun, you're a great GM. Bye.